once you've been in the market for 21 years and you look at that account and you get to see it going up, you're going to like realize the value of investing and that that's, you know, like the true path to wealth. Yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in it like no days off on the road. Let's travel. Never looking back. All right. We're live. What's going on? How is Steph? Nice fancy pants background. Yeah, I'm in um, Mechanism. It's a fancy. Uh, it's a fancy pants office. It, do you know what Mechanism is? I've heard of it. That's the agency guy who's a friend of yours. I kind of know him a little bit now. Yeah, they have uh, an agency, maybe a 200 person agency, and they've got uh, as you do with agencies, you've got very fancy offices in Soho in New York, and right. no one is here. <laughs> and I'm in the fancy office here right now. All right, good stuff. Yeah, you missed Steph. She was great as always. So she uh, had a bunch of ideas. It's like I know um, it's funny. Like we've had Abreu be kind of like our, our version of, of Jamie. Like Joe Rogan has Jamie. We've had Abreu. We now have Dan. And you get a sense because at the end of every episode, we go, "Oh, Dan, how was it? Hey, Abreu, how'd we do?" And um, <laughs> and I feel like they 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 both like really keyed in on the same thing. Which I don't know if listeners care in the same way, but like. The more random tangents we go on, the kind of like they kind of love it, but they kind of hate it at the same time. Whereas when Steph comes on, it's like, here are five ideas. We're gonna do idea one, then two, then three, then four, then five. What a jam-packed episode of ideas. And it's like, you know, me and her don't have the same chemistry me and you have of like just being able to go on on random tangents or just kind of bullshit a little bit. And so it's more packed with info, but it's less packed with detours. And uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's packed with info. So I think I think definitely Dan liked it. I think a lot of people will like it, but it's interesting to me how how that goes. Yeah, and I've also noticed that a lot of the things that I like, the things that I, if I think it's going to be good, I think it tends not to be good. And if I think it's going to be bad, <laughs> it's be bad. That's what I've noticed with content. But the reason I wasn't here is so. Let me tell you this funny story about Twitter. So four months ago, three months ago, I tweeted out that I wanted to go drive race cars. So one of my 2021's res- resolution was I wanted to do more adventurous stuff. So I want to take a sniper class lesson. I want to go hunting. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to go hunting and kill what I've eaten, which I've never done before. Um, I wanted to do a cross-country trip. I did it. And I wanted to go re- learn how to re- do a race cars. And so I tweeted out I wanted to go to a, a driving class. This professional NASCAR driver named Parker hollered at me on Twitter. And so me and Jack Butcher, uh, who's a, a buddy of ours and a buddy of mine, we drove up here out to the country two hours outside of New York to Connecticut. And we took this class. It was $2,500. It was at this uh-huh. place called Skip Barber, Skip Barber driving, ra- driving Class. We met the owner of the class. This is a business that, uh, that's a driving school. It does like $15 million in revenue. Crazy wow. interesting, kind of cool. It it, it was it, uh, an ex cop owns it, like a like a New York cop, like and this like his was his. He's like, oh, I'll just try it because I'm re- I don't work as a cop anymore. It turns into a thriving business. He told me his goal is to hit to a hundred million in revenue in the next five years, off this one track, or like he has many of these. So here's what they do. So it's called Skip Barber Racing. It's like a famous brand. It's from the '60s. He bought it out of bankruptcy. I imagine he paid like low hundreds of thousands of dollars. He okay. bought the brand name. It's basically a website where they get leads. So Skip Barber, if you're into cars, it's like a famous racing school. He owns the website, and so people go and submit leads at where they want to go, and they go and find like tracks throughout the country, and they rent huh. like 20 days at the track, and they show up with their tractor trailer with like. 20 mustangs that you can that they drive and then it's like a traveling circus they go from place to place to place to place it was pretty interesting so what'd you drive 
it's by the it, way, I know nothing about cars. So you're gonna say something, and I'm gonna be like, oh, cool. No, no, I, no, no. I'm no. not even gonna know. It looks like a Mustang, but it's like it's a race car. So there's no seats. You're locked in. You wear a helmet. You're locked in. What do you mean there's like no the, seats? There's only a driving seat. Like at the uh, inside, okay. it's like a it's it is a it's a race car. There's a roll bar. There's no like AC or radio or anything like that. But it looks like a Mustang from the outside. Anyway, no that's where it was. Crazy fascinating business. That's pretty cool. Um, while you were saying that, you said something about he used to be a cop. And we had talked about the retired, the mafia tours in New York business. I'm going on it. A great idea. So if you don't, if you didn't hear that episode, it's basically retired cop in New York takes you on a walking tour of New York City to the different like areas where the mafia families lived. And he kind of tells you stories. It's like, we all like crime TV shows or whatever. And, uh, and this is like basically crime TV walking tour. Um, and so you get to hear all these stories. I guess you're going on it. That's cool. And we had said he, he had done over a million dollars in sales on his Airbnb experience uh, of doing this, which is pretty freaking awesome. All right, it's time for a little ad break. Ever wonder what a unicorn eats for breakfast? Okay, I don't actually know, but I do know that 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot and for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, marketing, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big on your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, go to HubSpot.com slash startups. So um, this thing you're talking about, though, uh, I think there could be a really cool version of that that somebody makes, which is basically a cops and robbers, like a cop chase, a car chase, basically. So they could just have a, a, a driver who knows what they're doing as the kind of like main driver. And then you get to be in a cop car. Like we do, they just take some junk cop car. And you get to drive that thing. You get to like, be talking on the little radio, try to get their license plate. And it's basically like a, you know, controlled simulation of a car, a cop chase, like an actual cop chase. You go, you get them, you spin them out. Then you get out of the car and you get like, you arrest them as the end of it. And I feel like that would just be a super fun and be a lot of people would pay for that and the video of it. I uh yeah so we pay I paid twenty five hundred dollars for this I think I paid an additional three hundred dollars for a video for the video pictures. of course yeah <laughs> uh, man it was awesome it's fun it's fun to do this stuff to to get out of our comfort zone and do exciting stuff uh, so that's where I was nice uh, okay I love that all right let's do um, let's do some ideas I have an idea that's kind of related to this so I was watching uh, Dana White who's the president of the UFC and uh, he was doing this like YouTube video and he's like with Check the out- boys. Uh, no, not that one. There was this one who just goes, check out how sick my hotel room is right now in Houston. Did you see this? Yep. And he had a uh, uh, go. Yeah. No, 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 go ahead. Describe it. And I'll tell you the part. If that- I remember correctly, he had a movie theater in his hotel yep. room. I think he had a full or no half size basketball court. Yep. That was had- painted like the Rockets basketball court with the official scoreboard on the on the on the wall and stuff. And what else did he have? He had a bunch of stuff. So he had that. He had like a full gym. Like, so, you know, like hotels have a gym. His hotel room had a gym, (laughs) which is kind of amazing. And then he's got like, whatever, cool bed, bathroom, full steam room. But the thing I thought was interesting, he goes, check this out. And he grabs this huge rifle off the wall. It was like a rifle, a shotgun sitting next to each other. And he was like, this is cool. It's like a virtual shooting range. And then he like, and he panned, they kind of panned over it. They went over it real quick. So I couldn't even really see what it was. But in my head, I just immediately thought of, You've seen these like golf driving ranges that are basically it's a green screen and then you swing a real club and you hit a real ball into the green screen and it like simulates where it would have landed if you were on a real golf course. And um, those are like semi-popular. 
so he's got this rifle off the wall and I started thinking, oh, that's kind of cool. Basically, if you've ever held a real gun, it feels totally different than like, you know, the duck hunt gun or like an arcade gun. Like a real gun has like weight to it. It has like a recoil if you fire the thing. So I was thinking somebody could probably build a high-end version of this niche business, which is basically virtual shooting ranges. So you have either a screen, like a green screen or like a plasma, like a big flat screen TV. And then you give them like what feels like a real gun, but it's like a digitally enabled thing. So you don't have to have bullets and go outside and do all that stuff. And I feel like somebody could build a a pretty unique business doing that, providing that either to bars or even for at-home stuff or corporate events. That's a fantastic idea. Have you ever been to an indoor shooting range? Indoor shooting? Oh, like where the target's there and you have the earmuffs on or whatever? Yeah, I've never done it. Okay, it's miserable. So I've only done outdoors. (laughs) So the outdoor shooting ranges are fun. Indoor shooting ranges miserable the, it has lights like a hospital and it is so loud right like, if you've ever been next to like an ar-15 or some like you know like a huge gun when it shoots it rattles your neighbor so you're yes. standing right next to someone and it, it's not just loud but it shakes me and right. it's a miserable <laughs> unsafe horrible experience i would way rather do something fun like this over that yeah so and i feel like because it's digital you can do fun stuff right so when I went to go shoot a gun for the first time, I'm not into that, but my brother, my brother-in-law is, he, um, you know, we went and it's like, you're outside, it was kind of cold, you're shooting these like paper targets, they don't move, uh, you have to stand still, every five minutes you have to stop, reload the fucking gun, takes time, like, there's like a lot of breaks in between the action. The action is fun, but like, there's a lot of other stuff going on. It was, it was uncomfortable. And, uh, and I get that, like, you know, real man shit, not supposed to be comfortable, but guess what? People like comfort. So, um, so I think what you could do instead is you basically make a souped up version of the deer hunter game where you get the digital gun, but it feels like the weight of a real rifle or a real shotgun. And then you have like a digital scenario, right? You wanted to do a sniper class, or I don't even know what you said, like a psychopath, but like you probably <laughs> want to like simulate actually like sniping someone at a like situation in some situation. Like you can only see part of their head, they're really far away or whatever. So you could do that instead of just a paper target. So I think this could be a good idea. I'm sure something like this exists, but it's all about turning it into a business in a box or a traveling circus, like you said, and like coming up with a model that that productizes this better. I think it's a great idea. And I would love to. I would love to attend. All right, let's do another one. You uh, okay. you pick either one for All yours right. or one for mine. This is a little bit less of an idea, but more of an experience that I had. So last week I went down to Nashville. I had an, uh, an issue a few weeks ago where I had a car problem. I had to leave my car at the dealer in Nashville. I went to go pick it up, and I started shooting the shit with the salesperson. They sold. He told me this is this is a Mercedes Benz Music City dealership. Uh, that's what it's called. They told me that they sold 200 cars in June. Is that does that boggle your mind? <laughs> I never really thought about how many cars that is. That's 20 million dollars in car sales right. in one month. That's crazy to me. And so I went and looked at what the figures were for uh, what how many cars are sold June to January because I would think January or February would be a slow month. It's mostly pretty steady. It's hmm. like 1.6 million on a high month and 1.2 million on a low low month. It's not crazy different. So if you assume that the average sale price was $100,000, and then you assume that they did $20 million for six of the months and $15 million for the other six of, uh, six months, that's $210 million in one location. 
And then I was talking with the guys who ran the, the company, who ran the dealership. They told me that they can expect to make 10 to 15% profit on that. Does that kind of boggle your mind that one location could do that much in sales? And was this like, did you feel like it was like an outlier location, like killer, killer real estate or something like that? It's a Mercedes dealer in Nashville, and there's three in the city. So did I think that that's an outlier? In one sense, yes, because they're selling you know expensive cars. So like, it's not like a Hyundai where you're selling twenty thousand right. dollars cars. But it's in, and it's also in Nashville. There's probably ten to twenty cities in America that are of equal booming as Nashville. So outlier in one sense, yes, but not crazy outlier. And so I got interested in this. And so there's this amazing website called Open Secrets. Have you heard of that? I've I've heard of it, but I've never gone to it. What do you you actually go to it? It's like I reading go to WikiLeaks it. or something. I go to it all the time, and here's why. So if you go to it, you can go. It's called Open Secrets, maybe OpenSecrets.org. And so I don't know if it's legal or if it's customary, but if you are a senator, if you're in the House of Representatives, if you're in a certain type of office in America, they typically disclose their income taxes and also what their net worth is, and you could browse through and you could see how much money they have in different bank accounts. You could see how much money they have in different stocks. You can see how much money they value their privately held business. It's incredibly fascinating. So for example, if you Google open secrets, net worth senators, you'll see a list of the richest senators and huh. it will tell you where their money is. And you could click it. And in some cases, if it's from the 90s, for example, if you go and look at George Bush's net worth, you could actually see it's, it's still a handwritten W2. So it's incredibly fascinating. And I browse through there uh, a fair bit because I think it's really fun. Who cares what if they're politicians or not? But what's interesting is that they're incredibly wealthy. And you could see, how do people allocate money? Where does their income come from? How does that work? And I noticed that there was a fair bit of people who made money through car dealerships in Congress. And I actually made a list of them. So the first one, Vernon Buchanan. He's, out of, he's a congressman out of Florida, $157 million net worth. Where does his money come from? Buchanan Automotive Group, where they sell new and used cars in Florida. And he assigned By 50 way, million. Hold on. I'm just going through this list. I did not realize these senators, there's this many senators that are this wealthy. So first, the funny, the funny thing is there's the richest and poorest. So, okay, on the top side, you have Mark Warner, richest senator. Uh, he's in Virginia, I think. And uh, $214 million. Poorest senator, poor Al C. Hastings in Florida, negative $7.5 million net worth. This guy is in a hole of debt. This guy is just, and you know, the, the, the lowest one that is non-negative, let's see. Probably uh, like a hundred grand or something, like a Pete yeah, Buttigieg something, something or something. Like I'm exporting all these CSVs. This is going to be great. Uh, go, go on. Sorry. And this so guy. I went and looked at some of the Congress folks that were, that were, Rich and it was Vernon Buchanan. He owns an automotive group. He assigned uh, around thirty-five million dollars of his net worth. Sorry, uh, almost a hundred million dollars of his net worth to car dealerships. Ron Williams from Texas, net worth sixty-seven million dollars. He had close to ten million dollars because he uh, is part owner of a Chrysler, Dodge, and Jeep business. John Campbell, net worth of twenty-three million dollars. He owns franchises for Nissan, Mazda, Ford, Saturn, and Saab. And Mike Kelly, net worth $20 million. He assigned at least $5 million for his car dealers. It was incredibly fascinating. So I dug even deeper. This Nashville dealer, you want to know who's the co-owner? Who? Nick Saban, the uh, <laughs> coach, from, coach. The, from University of Alabama. And he owns a bunch of them. He owns three, four, or five. Crazy fascinating to me about car dealers. 
And I, I was just so curious as to how the rest of them do. And so I did a little bit more research and I read uh, different interviews with car dealers. And typically they make about 5 10% in profit. But the secret is that A, they have to make most of their money from service and parts because that's where the big margin is. And B, huh. there's actually there's actually a lot of ways that you can test this. So you can do loads of test advertising and they kind of do this like MVP style advertising where they'll advertise in different places, see which cars sell and then become an importer or a, sorry, a dealer of that particular car. Uh, I just thought it was so fascinating about how these car, car dealerships work. Have you ever, uh, like, do you know anything about this business? First of all, you're on fire right now. So I just got to give you a little bit of credit. You're on fire right now. I don't know if this is Jake, the researcher. I don't know if this is Sam, the, the deal hunter. It's I don't both. know what's going on, but good job. I love this. I love open secrets. I love the senator thing. And I love the car dealership thing. All right. So let, let me just put that on the table. All right, everyone, a quick break because I want to fill you in on a little experiment that I'm doing. I've got a new project. It's called MoneyWise. It's a personal finance podcast for high net worth people or young people who are on their way to becoming high net worth. When I made a little bit of money, I didn't even know how much money I should be spending each month. Should it be 10,000, 30,000, 50,000? And I didn't really have a lot of people to ask. So I created a podcast called MoneyWise because I wanted to figure out what are some of the things that people who have a lot of cash and who have a high net worth, what do they do with it? The first episode is with a friend of mine. He sold his company for $200 million when he was 31 years old. He gets super transparent about his monthly expenses, his portfolio, how it impacts his happiness, everything. And so I want you guys to check it out. It's called Money Wise. That's one word. You can find it on my Twitter bio. I'm the Sam Parr. Or you can just type in Money Wise on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, back to the pod. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about the HubSpot Podcast Network. If you like podcasts like this, you should check out some other cool podcasts. One is called Business Made Simple. It's hosted by Donald Miller, and it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. And what he does is he makes it easy to take the mystery out of growing your business. There's an episode that you should check out called What You Should Put in a Job Description to Get the Perfect Hire. And in this episode, Donald Miller looks at the whole hiring process and how important it is to emphasize both the, the positive attributes and the drawbacks to future candidates. And you'll learn why being self-aware as a leader will help you avoid hiring disasters. So check it out. Go listen to Business Made Simple wherever you get your podcasts. Have I thought about this? No, but it's been hidden in plain sight. I grew up in Colorado and uh, John Elway always had dealerships. It was like everywhere. And I just, I never really thought about it, but like clearly the guy was making bank on these dealerships. Otherwise he wouldn't be spending so much time and energy doing all these little kind of like marketing meet and greets at his dealerships. And that combo of like local hero car dealership, I think has just worked for a long time. Like in the movie, Little Giants, I think the, the guy, that's how the guy had his money too, is like local football star, you know, car dealer is like, just like a formula that works. And um, I know that like, there's like the guy who's, who gets a lot of press during um, whenever the Toronto Raptors do well, they have this super fan uh, this Sikh Indian guy who who uh, shows so, up at courtside of every game, Nav Bhatia. I actually have him listed here. So he started as a Hyundai salesperson, and he eventually started owning a car dealership. And he claims his net worth is fifty million dollars. Exactly, and he spends all of his money <laughs> traveling with the team and buying courtside tickets to every single game. This guy's like a maniac. Um, he goes to every single game, and he has for like twenty years courtside, and he's like cheering like crazy. And yeah, he started as a salesman. You're right. Um, okay, so this is kind of interesting. I want to share with you a couple of things that I can add to this. Have you and, ever heard and, of... And by the way, if you scroll down, you can see all the examples I have of people who have made at least a billion dollars through car dealers. You see yeah, that? Yeah, this is pretty impressive. So the Benson family, they own the Saints. Uh, Penske, Wayne Hazinga, you, you love that guy. He started, what, AutoNation? Yeah. And he owns, uh, he owns the Miami Dolphins. 
yeah, that, that guy's a baller. We should we should feature him. You know a lot about him. Um, Mark Wahlberg has one. Michael Jordan has one. All right, that's pretty interesting. So that's cool. I didn't really realize that this is like one of those franchises that you kind of want to own. Um, I wonder if that's changing. So I, in my head, I'm like, car dealer, isn't this dead? Like, aren't car sales just moving online? And then you have platforms like Carvana that's like become like a $7 billion company of like buying cars online. So definitely some, some of buying cars moving online, um, but, I, but not all. And so I actually ran into this company called Modal. Have you ever heard of Modal? Tell me about it. The URL is just modalup.com. And uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Samir, uh, this great guy, Samir Bala, he basically, he was going to do a startup. And then I checked his LinkedIn. And he's like, oh, I'm COO of Modal now. I was like, what the heck? He took a job? And I was like, if this guy took a job, this must be an interesting business because he would not go join a company unless he thought this company had like really good prospects. And I trust his judgment. And so I, uh, I should have invested. I asked him to invest. He even made room and then I got cold feet at the last minute for some stupid reason. But basically, I think this is a great business. What they do is they basically made it so that any dealer... It's like Shopify for car dealers in a way. So it basically lets you sell cars digitally and online. So it creates like a website, a checkout button, a buy button that you can just send customers to that 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 want to buy from you. It also just like automates all the workflow. So like with buying a car, when you go buy a car, you're going to end up sitting in the dealership for like an hour because there's like the paperwork. If you're if you're doing a loan or a lease, you have to do even more paperwork. And then um, you know you just have to like collect all these signatures and get all this stuff to get the title in your name. And these guys basically turned all of that into software. And they were growing uh, really, really well, basically going to car dealerships and getting them to adopt this software so that they could keep up and compete with the kind of like online-only platforms. It's like, hey, don't, don't stay stuck in the uh, brick-and-mortar-only ways. Yes, you're a car dealership, but you should allow some digitalization. Digital, digitalize your workflow and let your customers go check out online and just buy products uh, and what they do is they actually claim that they can, you know, boost sales by like, I don't know, 30, 35% or something like that. And it shortens the cycle time because usually people take quite a while to look through stuff and they, um, they speed up the, the, the purchase price, uh, the purchase time as well. So I think this is a pretty cool business that's going to be quite big. I, I'm on board with all the digital stuff. I was just fascinating at, at just the brick and mortar. And it's, I, it's still growing like crazy. In fact, there's a, loads of data on this because... I didn't realize how impactful cars are. I mean, of course, I you know we all have them, but I didn't realize how they kind of, in a, in a sense, are minor, maybe major players in the in our country and how we even develop laws, things like that. And and so there's all this data that you can go and learn about this. So the average car dealership, like the a physical dealer, the average one in last year, 2021, did 36 million or sorry, year to date, so the first six months, 36 million dollars in sales. And uh, just the average car dealer. And we sell something like... Um, yeah, but that's like GMV. That's like car sales. So, you know, they don't... You just have 10, 10 to 15% maybe is their margin on that. So that's correct. 3 million, you know, take for the, for the whole dealership. It's still astounding. And then if you can also go and look at uh, another website you can go to is ProRepublica. And you can see which lobbies give money to the government for different laws. Car dealer... or the car lobby, which are, there's like eight of them, they give right. substantial amounts of money. And anyway, that's my, that's my segment on car dealers and cars. Pretty astounding. I was shocked by it. We can move on. You know what's cool, by the way? Tesla, no, no dealership model. So bold move by them to not have any dealers. And in doing so, 
basically kept a lot of the profit for themselves and went direct to consumer. They were the sort of first direct to consumer car company uh, that exists. So, so good job by by Elon. Yeah, and it, I could see that taking off, but the market is massive. Not everyone's going to do the same thing, um, and so there's room for everyone. Sam, or a lot. Always holding it down for for blue collar America. I love it. You know, in my mind, it's just two coasts squished together with some stuff in the middle, and you're like, no, no, the middle is. There's a lot of beautiful stuff in the middle, and it's not all just going away and becoming like fancy tech right away. Not yet, at least. <laughs> All right, uh, let's do some more. So look at my topics here and tell me which one's interesting. Spoonflower is one of the most interesting things I've seen lately. Had you heard of this before, Spoonflower? No, no. So, so check it out. I don't even know the URL. I think it's just spoonflower.com. Uh, they, so, they sold for $225 million. So I, I got familiar with this because uh, for uh, a, a clothing company that we were working on, uh, we needed to look at patterns. And I was like, where do you find patterns online? And you can find patterns in many places, but one place was Spoonflower. So this is... Basically, a marketplace where you have on one side designers who come up with like, let's say, a nice floral pattern or sunflower pattern. And then you can take those. So like I think your mother-in-law is doing like a pillow business. And so she could go on Spoonflower and say, ooh, I really like this fabric swatch pattern. Um, I want to basically buy this pattern and turn it into pillows. I want to buy this pattern and turn it into wallpaper. And so you can use it for all the things that patterns go on. Wallpaper you know, like mats, um, uh, pillowcases, whatever, different stuff like that. Blankets, curtains, shit like that. So it's this like niche marketplace you most people haven't even heard of. And then you go there and you see it and you're like, oh, this makes total sense. And so they sold for $225 million to Shutterfly. Um, I thought it was really cool. And just like kind of this niche product that has been around for a while that sold. And then... I wanted to share also a growth hack, but what's your kind of like first reaction to this? I think this is brilliant. I'm looking at it right now. There's a few reasons why I like this company. The first is that I believe it's based in, in North Carolina. I like things that are not in Silicon Valley, not in the heart. I think they're not in the heart of uh, tech, technology uh, hubs. I think that's amazing. Uh, there's so many th- wonderful things about this business. It's just, I mean, it's a win-win-win type of company where, where you help people make money, you help people get what they want. The company, Spoonflower, makes a little bit of cash. I'm into it. Right. And it was started in 2008. So it's been around for a while. And it's one of these that like, like most marketplaces, marketplaces are extremely valuable when you get them to work, but they can take time to work because you have to get that, you have to keep cranking the wheel of supply and demand to get it to, to work. You need enough designs and enough designers and enough buyers. And then you have to keep like, do a lot of manual stuff to make that work. So one thing I liked, um, this guy who listens to the pod, Adam, Adam Kiesling, I think is, is how you say his name. Uh, he was talking about um, this deal, and he was pointing out this like uh, this method that they used to grow. And he's like, uh, "I'll just share with you a couple things that he pointed out." So, Spoonflower, three point three million unique artists, uh, four thousand new designs uploaded on average every day. So that's like pretty crazy scale. And what they did was they would do design challenges. And so, um, Spoonflower would host a design challenge, and then the top fifty voted popular voted designs would get featured as the winner circle. And um, it would get to the top of the website. And then if you go to the website, you click like, you know, oh, let me see the best Halloween designs. Uh, that would drive like 95% of the sales to a lot of the creators. So it was kind of feast or famine. You would you take your shot to get noticed. But if you got noticed, you would get a ton of inbound sales um, for, for, those, uh, for those contests, right? And it might just be like 
a thousand or two thousand people participating in each one. And so I thought this was a pretty smart model of how they bootstrap the marketplace. So they're like, all right, we need a, buyers want content for Halloween. How do I get a bunch of designers to make the right Halloween content and make it all make a bunch of new ideas that are unique? You can only find them on Spoonflower. I'll host this contest. And the contest winners get like, I don't know, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars. It doesn't have to be too much money. Um, and they get exposure through that, through that process. And then he was, Adam was sharing that like, uh, you know, Food 52, that they used to do the same thing. When they were seeding their marketplace of recipes, right? They had chefs uploading recipes and then people coming to download them. Um, they, would, they created a contest called Your Best Recipe Using Fresh Mozzarella, right? So give me your best mozzarella recipe. And then, you know, they would get Whole Foods to sponsor it and get a gift card. And then they're like the, the grand prize is $1,000, right? And so they would keep doing these contests around things that people were searching for in order to seed the marketplace with the right content. So I thought that was a cool learning as well from this. This is amazing. And what's even more interesting or as interesting is that Shutterfly bought them. I, yeah. I forgot about Shutterfly. I just looked yeah. them up. Shutterfly, I think they got, did they, did they get delisted? They were public. They had a $2 billion market cap and like close to $2 billion in revenue. Right. <laughs> and yeah, so one, uh, that's a complicated, that's a, that's a crazy space the show that where Shutterfly is. So, you know, good luck. Good luck to them I on think that one. Spoonflower is badass. Can we, um, can I tell you something that surprised me? Uh, so, so the other day, Rihanna was named a billionaire. That's pretty amazing, right? Yeah. I think that's amazing. And so I, I got curious. I started working with Jake. I was like, what other celebrities have gotten rich in ways that I wouldn't really have known right away? And it kind of got, I kind of got this YouTube. This is going to be a YouTube segment right here. 10 I, celebrities it, that got rich, not from their fame. <laughs> it, well, it's, it is a little bit extended from the fame, but I'm going to give you six of them. So the first, you know who Jimmy Buffett is? You're not, you're not, a, you're not white. So you may not be in a Jimmy Buffett. I've heard the name, but if you said point, here's five old white guys point out Jimmy Buffett, I would just point to the far right. I have no idea. So Jimmy Buffett, I don't even know how to just explain them. White 60-year-olds who wear Tommy Bahama. Do you even know what that is? Yes, I know that one. Uh, okay, white 60-year-olds who wear Tommy Bahama love him. He's the guy who created uh, Cheeseburger in Paradise, that song. So he also had this album called Margaritaville. It's all about the Caribbean and being on a boat and like living this like parrot style life. I, I think right. that's parrot heads is what he's called. So he's got Margaritaville. It's uh, a subsidiary of Cheeseburger Holding Company, which is pretty funny. He's got 30 <laughs> restaurants and he has vacation clubs, hotels, uh, a retirement village and tequila. Collectively, the holdings do something like $2 billion a year in sales. Is that crazy? Wow. Impressive. Then, you also probably don't know about this one. This isn't in your wheelhouse, but Dolly Parton. Do you know Dolly is Parton? That, is, is that his girlfriend? Who is this? You don't know who Dolly Parton is? <laughs> Again, I've heard the name. If you showed me five That's old so white ladies, I couldn't point out Dolly Parton. So Dolly Parton was a famous country singer, but she did more than just country. Have you uh, heard the song, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston? Yes. She wrote that. She wrote Working 9 to 5, which has been covered huh. many times. She's just a hit maker, but she was famous. You probably remember p photos of her. She's in her probably close to 80s now, 70s, but she's right. famous for having blonde hair and huge boobs. Uh, you definitely re like remember her. She has okay. famous phrases like, it, it, you'd, you wouldn't be, you'd be amazed at how much money it costs to look this cheap. She's got phrases like that, <laughs> but she's actually a great person. And she uh, has she's an a empire. She's a great person. <laughs> Well, she's like, <laughs> well, she's like, she, she's known for her philanthropy and for doing good. She she gives back to the community. She seems like a wonderful person. Um, and it's kind of a joke that she looks cheap. That's like her joke. Um, right. But it's estimated that she has a net worth of like $600 million. And I was driving through the Smokies recently, just two weeks ago. 
uh, and I drove through Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which is a small town in the mountains of Tennessee. And right outside of that, she has a fucking theme park. It's called Dollywood. Her name's Dolly Parton. She has Dollywood. There's rides. It's a huge deal. It's amazing. They've got, uh, just imagine Six Flags, but it's all about Dolly Parton, and it's called Dollywood. It's amazing. Yeah, you, you know we're like 15 years away from like Paul World in in LA, and it's the Paul Brothers uh, you know, version of Disney World. That's what's going to happen here. They, they are our Dolly Partons of our generation. It, it could be. So I'm shocked. You've never heard of Dolly, War- Dolly, War- Dolly World. You've never heard of that, Dollywood? No, no. It's a huge thing. It's very big. Like it's like a mini Six Flags. It's not even a mini Six Flags. It's almost as big as Six Flags. <laughs> and people in the South, I'm from Missouri. I lived in Tennessee, so I'm kind of Southern. People in the South are obsessed with it. That's where you go on vacation. You go to Dollywood, and then you actually go to a lot of different casinos in the South. You'll see Dolly Parton themed uh, casinos. Casinos. It's crazy. All right, another one. Sammy Hagar. That doesn't ring a bell either to you, does it? No, this is just a humiliate Sean session. God, that's so funny. Van Halen. <laughs> do you know what Van Halen is? I, I heard the dude, name. Dude, dude, you are <laughs> could, so... Couldn't hum, couldn't hum a song if I, if I wanted to. <laughs> God, that's so funny. Okay, so Sammy Hagar uh, from Van Halen, he sold uh, a tequila company for around $80 million. And it was uh, a tequila brand. And I'll just tell you two quick ones. You don't know any of these people. It's all just like white basic people. Kate Hudson. You know Kate okay, Hudson? I know Kate Hudson, but... I there see the we word go. Fabletics written here. She, what does she have to do with Fabletics? She helped start it. She was one of the co-founders. Oh, no way. Okay, I didn't know that. Crazy, right? Uh, your wife probably wears it. I mean, it's like a, a, a they they sell fancy tights, right? Right. Two thousand twenty revenue, five hundred million dollars. Wild. And then and so finally, Jessica Alba. Tw- she owns twenty percent of it. Yeah, yeah I know so, Jessica Alba. Yeah, so twenty percent meaningful. Um, and finally, Jessica Alba started or helped start the honest company it just ipo'd it's got a market cap north of a billion dollars i believe and her stake are around 130 million dollars it's pretty amazing right i like it um yeah so what do you what do you think is like the best model so what do we see here we saw like entertainment so hotels uh casinos you know like kind of like amusement parks then we saw basically like makeup company skincare company you know, fragrance company and alcohol brand. Um, which one do you like, or do you think there's another one that their celebrities are sort of leaving on the table? Uh, alcohol seems like the best. Conor McGregor recently did it. He sold um, Proper Twelve. I believe his stake was worth around a hundred million dollars. I uh-huh. think alcohol is the the best one because you can charge fifty dollars for a bottle of a certain type of alcohol, and there's a chance that someone will want to buy that many times a month. So I think alcohol is interesting. Makeup's okay. I, I don't, obviously don't know anything about that. Rihanna crushed it. Her brand is killing it. It's called right. uh, what's it called? Fenty, and she's yeah. got she's got she's got a couple brands. They kill it. But I think alcohol is number one. Though I do think that there's a world. If I was a Lance Armstrong, and I've told him he should have done this when he was on the podcast. If I was a Lance Armstrong, a Michael Phelps, something like that, I would 100% partner with a hotel brand and do fitness focused hotels. And try to have branded a branded pool or a branded pool instruction that you could do in that pool, like a workout, or do a cycling branded hotel. I think that would crush, and I think you could make money for every year for fifty years doing that. Right. Yeah, I think doing something that's on brand is, is kind of the key. Like uh, Sam Harris doing this with a um, Sam Harris did this with a uh, a meditation app, right? Because that's what's on brand for him. If Sam Harris came out with alcohol or like you know, like a skincare line, no thank you. 
But Sam Harris with a meditation app, that can work. And I think that thing prints money. It does. And so I've heard. Um, all right. You want to do a few more? Yeah. Dan has one on here, by the way. Uh, George Clooney making a billion dollars with Casa Amigos uh, tequila. Um, somebody told me this story. I, I didn't plan to say this. I don't know if it's true or not. I might be making it up. Uh, George, have you heard this George Clooney giving his friends a million dollars each? No. So, so George Clooney, uh, this is the story. So, so George Clooney, um, at one point in time, he was like, you know, when I, I think he was thinking like, when, um, when I retire, when I die, like I want to basically give some of my wealth to my friends. Cause these friends are like some of the best people in my life. I used to sleep on their couch when I was like trying to make it. And they really like helped me in one way or another. All these friends have helped me. And then he decided like, okay, why am I going to wait till I die? Like that doesn't make any sense. And so he invited them all to like a, a dinner or like a, like a dinner at his like whatever cabin or, or something like that. I'm making up a lot of these details, but what I was told was he invites them all to a dinner and he brings 14 briefcases uh, or like suitcases, a Tumi suitcase, actually. Um, each one was filled with a million dollars in cash and he invited them over for dinner and then he gave each of them the suitcase and they each just got a million dollars from him. And he was like, um, you know, I've been through some hard times and, you know, I want you to not have to worry about your kids, your mortgage, your school, whatever it is. Um, you know, here you go. Enjoy. And I was like, that is a baller move. I love that. Why haven't I heard this story before? I think that's kind of amazing. And that actually is uh, comes to a point. I've actually been reading about this lately. So there's this great book and this concept called Die With Zero. Have you heard of this? No, but I get the idea just off the title. So it's a good title. Yeah. So it's called Die With Zero. And the idea that we all have is I want to try to earn money. And when I die, I've got something to give away to my family. And if you don't have family, right. I can give away to causes that I care about. And this whole concept be, behind Die With Zero is why would you do that? And Regardless if you believe in heaven or not, I, I don't. What I think, when I, I was like, well, when I die, it's going to feel like just how it felt like before I was born. Right, nothing. And how did it feel like before I was born? Nothing. So do I really care about a legacy? Like, do I care about what people are saying about, like, to, about me when I'm, you know, pre-born feeling? Right. Of course not. I don't care. So if I'm going to, and that's not, he actually doesn't say that in the book. That's my, that's me. But the point of the book is, all right, why would you care so much about what, what you're going to do when you're dead? Just give it to people or your friends, like do that plan before you die and enjoy right. it with your, your friends create and family. A, create a giving plan now. If giving matters to you, create a giving plan now and do execute on it now and not when you're dead, right? Two scenarios. Scenario one, you wait till you're 88 years old, 92 years old, you pass away. Then there's a will reading and, you know, a couple of your friends are there. They're also in their 88, 88 to 92 year old range. Uh, and your kids are there and their kids are there, whatever. And you pass, you know, you pass along some money to them and your 88 year old friend is like, oh, thanks for the, thanks for the million dollars, George. Appreciate it. Like, it'll go straight to my, like, you know, dialysis machine. Yeah. You know, like, what, what do I need this for? Uh, and your kids are also like, cool, could have used that when I was paying off student debt for years or like wanted to start a business. Uh, but now that I'm 42, I'm glad that uh, I'm 45. Years, I'm glad I got this, this inheritance from you. Thank you. Um, and so, so that's scenario one, scenario two, you invite your friends over for dinner. You bring us to me suitcase with a million dollars in it. And you say, when I eat, we all eat, let's go. And, uh, and, and basically you, you hook up the people who have helped you and it mattered to you and you help their lives today because why wait 40 years and let them have 
more discomfort or suffering along the way when you could, if, you, if you're trying to give to make an impact, impact today is worth a lot more than impact 45 years from now. And, um, and so I'm a big believer in this. I hadn't really thought about it till I heard this George Clooney story. But when I heard it, I was like, oh. And you know, my friends, if I invite you to a dinner in a cabin and I show up with 14 suitcases, like you know what's happening. I'm about to George Clooney your ass because that's what's going on. And I really have taken this mindset of, of when I eat, we all eat. Um, and I really think it's a lot more fun to, to live that way. Um, the other, the other little story I'll share, uh, I was talking to my trainer and I was like, I was like, so, uh, I call him Jay. I was like, yo, Jay. So you like, you know, about my goals, my dreams, you're helping me get there. Cause you're my coach. Like, and you talk about like, you want to spin up your business. You're starting this fashion line. Great. Like, uh, what's your, like, what, what is your dream though? Like we do this imagination exercise, you know what I'm imagining for myself. And we, we love that feeling and we use that. What's yours? And, and, and he has this thing, which is you don't imagine the outcome. So like, let's say you wanted to be rich. You don't imagine selling your company to HubSpot and looking in your bank account and seeing X dollars. You imagine like the congratulatory conversation. Like once it happens, you won't be so fixated on it happening. Your life will just be different because it happened, right? So you might imagine, you know, um, your you know, you might imagine your friend calling you, congratulating you on the deal, or you might imagine booking a trip because you have all this free time now. And so you don't imagine the money, you imagine what happens after you had it. And you can, you know, those, the sort of implied state. So anyways, his was, oh, I imagine getting a text from my mom saying, you know, son, thank you for the $6,000 this month. Like, that's huge for me. Like, uh, you know, I'm so grateful to have a son like you. Thank you so much. And then, so he, he was talking about that. I was like, oh, that's cool. So instead of saying, I want to be a millionaire so that I can forgive my mom something, he imagines the text from his mom. And then that got him thinking. So the next day he goes and he sends her $600. He's like, look, I can't send her 6,000 every month right now, but I can send her 600 today. And then he showed me the text he got the next morning. And it was literally like almost word for word what he had told me in the garage. He was like, she had, she texted him. She's like, Son, I don't know what, what I did to deserve such a blessing of a son like you. The money you sent me, you don't even know. I needed that. Uh, like, it's going to go to exactly what I need. Thank you so much. Like, you know, I, I love you so much, son. I hope you're, you know, I hope you're doing well. And I was like, damn, that was kind of cool to see it come together. And I love that he didn't wait till it was all done to start the giving plan. All yeah. right. So since you were talking about giving money away, I saw that you wrote something pretty funny in our document called The Jewish Hack to Wealth. <laughs> Fuzz. I totally agree with you. <laughs> I have so but many. By the way, I don't even have more to say. That's just kind of it. <laughs> I have. I've, I, I, my, my wife is from a Jewish family. I've got uh, a lot of my Jewish friends. I am so envious of how the community and, and at my wedding, when we all of our Jewish guests, they gave us sig significant <laughs> checks. I also think it's a New York thing, or I don't know if it's a New York thing or a Jewish thing, but my Missouri friends would give $100. Our Jewish New Yorker friends would give $1,000. Right. And it was amazing. And I think that there's something in, the, in, in that particular community where you give a significant amount of money for gifts so you can help one another out and, and money kind of flows a little bit more freely. Getting eight or $5,000 or something when you're 16 years old or 15 years old I've talked to some kids. That's like how a lot of like interesting businesses have been started. They said they use their bar mitzvah money. I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, 
I don't know how many Jews there are in the world. I think there's like 10 million there's, Jews, something like that. It's like, four, it's like 20, I think. 14, yeah, it's not something like that. 14, 20 million, not a lot. But Jewish people have, they punch above their weight. They have a lot of impact. They have a lot of power. They have a lot of success. And I don't think it's genetic. I think it's cultural. I think basically there's a, a strong foundation of basically like helping each other out. So everything from birthright, right? Like a free, basically all expense paid trip to your home country at one point in your life. That's kind of an amazing program. And that keeps the, instead of the brain drain and people just sort of like leaving and not having this like emotional tie to the culture. No, that one transformative experience keeps people tied in. Um, there's, you know, bar mitzvah, right? So like, I have, I don't know how many times I've heard, yeah, I just took all my bar mitzvah money and uh, I used that to like, start the business or I use that to like start investing in the stock market. And like, like my buddy, he had, I think, I don't know if he had like 12 grand or something like 10 grand from his bar mitzvah, uh, like money or something like that. Like when he was whatever, I don't know how old you are, 13 or something when it happens. And by the time we were in college, he was like, he's like, got a fucking portfolio of a quarter million dollars. And I'm like, what, how do you have all this money? And he's like, oh yeah, it's just been compounding for, for you know, for, for 10 years basically. And uh, he's like, yeah, one of the guys, you know, our family friend who gave us the thing, he didn't even give me cash. He gave me straight stock of this one biotech company uh, that he really believed in. And that biotech company has like 10x in the seven year period. And uh, yeah, so like I have, you know, what do we want to do? I got $200,000 if we wanted to start a business. And I was like, man, what a hack. And so two things. I think it's amazing. Uh, I think more culture should do this. I also had heard a pretty interesting idea of like, you know, universal basic income. So it's like this idea of like every year you give people some amount of money, $10,000 a year or whatever. I don't know what the proposed numbers are, but some amount of money as your universal basic income, like social security for all people. Um, and it's like pretty expensive. And so some people think it's great. Some people think it's bad. I don't really know. I don't really care. But I do think this other idea I heard was better, which was um, what if you got a birth dividend? So let's say every U.S. citizen, when you're born, um, the government or whoever puts $2,500 in your account. Could be $2,500 or $5,000, something like that. So from age zero to, and you can't touch it till you're 21. Um, so age zero to 21, you, uh, you have this thing compounding. And if something's compounding over 21 years, it's going to, you know, double probably at least, I think, three times, so three to four times. And so, you know, everybody walking out at 21 years old would have fifteen dollars to $20,000 um, ready for them to, to do whatever they want as a, as a cushion for life, as a way to start something, as a way to fund a creative pursuit if they want to be an artist or whatever. And I thought that was a pretty powerful idea and like a great sort of one-time bonus for every citizen. Um, Who does that? It, and then it's invested, so it's actually fueling the economy. Um, so it's not like universal basic income where you get it, you might save it, you might spend it, you don't know what you'll do, but it's going to be invested in like an index for, for 21 years. And then in doing that, everyone is uh, bought into a particular type of thing. And so that way, even if you have um, different opinions, so I think that we should do this, I think we should do that, that's cool. But at least we all have a little bit, even if it's just a tiny bit, of skin of the game. And so we're incentivized in a similar way. And, and everybody that, would learn about investing and compounding and like the, the benefit of, of time in market. Uh, right? Time in market is the most important thing, right? There's the Buffett phrase, time in market is over... Is, I, I take that over timing the market. 
And so if you, once you've been in the market for 21 years and you look at that account and you get to see it going up, you're going to like realize the value of investing and that that's, you know, like the true path to, to wealth if, if you just do more of that. Whereas if you never get started, then you never really feel it real. Uh, so, so I think that's a big benefit. I think we should have the American bat mitzvah fun. That's actually a great idea. That's, 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 <laughs> that's incredibly interesting. Um, all right. Maybe what we want to do one last one. Yeah. Um, tell me about Aubrey de Grey. Cause, uh, I, yes, I've I known a little bit about this. I've known a little bit about him. I've listened to podcasts with this guy. I believe he's an, he's an anti-aging doctor and professor. Yes. So this is a funny story. I find it funny. Other people are going to be like, how could you say that's funny? The funny, it's ironic. I went on Twitter last night as I do. And I see this tweet that says, Aubrey de Grey is a sexual predator. I don't know who Aubrey de Grey is. So I'm like, but that's a bold tweet. Okay, what are you talking about? So, you know, my, 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 my gossip, the gossip part of me starts, starts getting excited. So I click it. I start trying to see what's going on. And basically, two things happen. I found out that this person, Aubrey de Grey, has, you know, kind of like, I don't know exactly what they've done, but made people feel uncomfortable at the least and maybe sexually harassed people at the most. I'm not 100% sure, but basically two women who were who are in that field, Laura Denning and uh, I forgot the other person's name, they came out yesterday or recently this week, something like that. And they published stories saying, Aubrey de Grey, you know, made me feel uncomfortable, made, you know, said things to me that were totally inappropriate, abuse of power. And the organization that funds him knew about this, covered it up because he was so important for fundraising and for the science of this, because he's been basically like a lifelong uh, leader of this movement of, of anti-aging. So I see that, and I'm like, all right, who's this Aubrey? I just want to see what he looks like. What, who's, who's this Aubrey de Grey guy? He's got this huge beard. Have you seen him? Yes. He looks like um, a little bit like uh, there was a – what's the famous uh, philosopher from the Soviet Union? No, uh, not Nostradamus. Rat, Rasputin. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he looks like, you know, Gandalf or Dumbledore or something like that. You know, he looks like, you know, of that lineage. You know, he, he, you wouldn't be surprised if he's Dumbledore's cousin. So he uh, – I, I see him and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. What's this guy like all about? Uh, what is it, is it a big deal? And I, I click and I – so two things. One, I click and I listen to this TED Talk. And ironically, the funniest thing in the TED Talk was at the end, somebody asked a question. Uh, and they go, if you're so into anti-aging, why do you try to look like an old man? Ah, that's pretty <laughs> I good. That was hilarious. Um, the second thing, thing is this guy is pretty fascinating, very charismatic, very weird, and very interesting. And the whole topic of anti-aging is fascinating. And so I know yesterday was like, he's getting canceled and like, you know, he probably did some fucked up things. And I don't really know the guy's character. Maybe he's a bad guy. I have no idea. But this topic of anti-aging and th that it was ironic that that was my entry point into it, but I was blown away by what's going on in this field. So I wanted to kind of share this with you. I basically wanted to like summarize this guy's TED talk uh, for you in like two minutes. Um, so he yes. gives his TED talk back in 2005 and he's talking a million miles a minute. I talk fast. He talks 10 times faster than me. And he's got these slides that are the white with black text and then like red font callouts of like his opinion. Uh, so he took like, you know, 12 minutes to make these slides, but they're actually very effective at communicating. And so he, he basically gives this talk. He goes, um, Aging and illness and death are, you know, uh, people think today that these are uh, inevitable and that they're okay and that they're good. Um, I don't think any of those things are true. I do not think it's inevitable. I think we will defeat aging. I think we will, we will be able to live thousands of years. Uh, I do not think they're good. 
and I do not uh, think we should just sit by and just let let you know 150,000 people die every day. That was like how he starts, right? So you're like, okay, tell me more. He's like, first, I'm going to tell you about the bad arguments against what I'm trying to say, right? I, by the end of this, I'm going to convince you that it's not only possible, it is probable that we're going to do this. Um, and I'll tell you how. But before that, I will convince you, I'll let me get rid of some of these really bad arguments. He's like, bad argument number one, um, oh, we'd be so bored if we didn't die, right? Uh, bad argument number two is, oh, uh, the population will get too big uh, and we'll, we're, humans are bad for the earth or whatever, right? And he goes through these arguments. He kind of like debunks each one of them very quickly. And he's basically like, look, what we want to do is we want to be healthy for a long time, right? We're not just trying to be old and like dependent and feeble for a long time. We want to be healthy for a long time. And he's like, here's what's going on in this field. And so this was kind of interesting to me. I, I didn't know any of this. So he's like, there's two schools. He's like, first, why do we die? And he's like, why do we die? We die for two reasons. He's like, to live, our body does all these metabolic processes, basically like heating your body, cooling your body, immune system, digesting food, like, you know, learning, growing, building muscle. Uh, all these are metabolic processes. We do them to live. And just like any machinery, like a car or a factory, the more you use the machinery, the more like the, as the physics of the thing moving happens, damage happens over time. It accumulates and eventually the thing breaks and stops working. So he goes, living creates damage. Damage is happening all the time. And then eventually the damage kills your cells and then you die. And he's like, all right. So there's two schools of thought. School thought number one is that let's stop the damage, prevent damage, right? Prevention is better than the cure. And he's like, bad idea. We barely even know how metabolism works. And it's highly unlikely that you're going to be able to keep the high function of the machine running and like stop damage from happening. Damage seems kind of like inevitable right. um, if the machine's going to run. And he's like, that's called whatever one school of thought. doesn't matter what this called, what the name is. He's like, then there's another called geriatrics. And geriatrics basically is like, cool, damage happens, but how do we like either repair damage or, uh, or like limit the damage so that it doesn't kill your cells? And he's like, that's where I think the, this is going to work. So here's like this guy's case on how this is going to work. He goes, we are going to reach a point where we have a therapy called human re rejuvena rejuvenation therapy, HJR. I think it's called HR, HRT or something like that. I don't know what he calls it. Human rejuvenation therapy. Let's just call it that for short. He's like, basically, you're going to, he's like, what we know is that you're living, by the way, is this boring or should I keep going? No, I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at what he's saying now. As you go, keep going. Okay, so so basically, he's saying like he's like one thing we notice is that the damage is happening from the day we're born, right? You your cells function, you damage, but you don't really feel the effects until you're like middle aged or getting older. So 40, 50, 60, that's when you start to the damage starts to accumulate, and the cells start to die, and that's when brain function slows down, muscle function slows down, reaction time slows down. He's like so. It, there's this like point where there's too much damage. So we need to give you a therapy before then. He's like, we can't just like modify your DNA so there's no damage happening. What we need to do is by the time you're 30 or 40, we need to be able to give you something that's gonna like repair the damage that's happening uh, faster than the damage is happening. And he's like, that's how we're gonna solve this. Number two, we're gonna solve it first in mice before we solve it in humans. He goes, mouse lives two years. The test is going to be, can you get the mouse to live five years? But here's the trick. You can't breed the mouse differently. You have to let the mouse live normally 
for 18 months. And then you have to give them something at 18 months that extends life by two years. Um, that's going to be the test. And he's actually put up like a million and a half dollar prize or whatever. Like there's a multi-million dollar prize for anybody that can do that. You have to do a test where it's like an X prize. It's like, let a mouse live for 18 months, give him a therapy. And now his life needs to be extended. And in the control where you don't give the mouse the thing, he needs to die six months later as planned. And um, so that's like the, that's the breaking point. He's like, once we figure out how to do that, then like 10, 15, 20 years later, something like that, we'll be able to translate that into humans. But we don't know how to do it in mice yet. Um, he's like, right now we can extend their life a few months, but not years. He goes, the second thing, people think that this is really far away. Like, oh yeah, maybe people will live forever, but not in my lifetime. He goes, what, the way that science works is he has this curve. He shows like, if you were 80 years old and we discover this shit, it's too late for you. You're dying. If you're 60 years old and we discover this shit, it's kind of too late for you. You're dying. If you're 50 and we discover it, we might extend you by a good 30 years, but you're probably going to die at that point. He's like, but if you're 40 or 30 and we discover this, like when, at the time when we discover this, you like have escape velocity, as I call it, meaning I'm going to give you the therapy before enough damage has happened and you're going to live like the guy who's 10 years older than you is going to live till he's 150 and you're going to live till you're a thousand. He's like, that blows people's minds, but it's true. It's just the way that this works, which is once we have the therapy, the difference between somebody living an extra 40 or 50 years and an extra thousand years will just be like a 10 year age gap because you'll be just below that threshold how, of damage. How far away are we? And so he's like, the, he's, then he just discusses the science of breakthroughs. He goes, in every field, there are breakthroughs. Breakthroughs are extremely hard to predict when they happen. He's like, flight. Even you know, from prehistoric ages, we've had this idea of being able to fly. And then nobody knew how to fly until like 1903. 1903, the Wright brothers figure out how to fly. And then from there, it's like every 25 years, there's like a pretty big jump from two dudes in a plane that's basically going to kill you to like a plane that's reliable, to a plane that can go really far, to supersonic planes, to like, now we get on a plane, it's super safe, you go to sleep, you watch a movie and you fly, right? Like every 25 years, incremental progress happens after the breakthrough. But you, So you can predict incremental progress. So he knows after we get the breakthrough of figuring out mice, we're gonna have like 15, 20 years before we get it to, to, to be a therapy in humans that extends life 20 or 30 years, a healthy life. Um, but... Uh, you know, we don't know when that breakthrough is going to happen. He's like, the bad part is it's been like a hundred years and basically nothing's happened uh, for, for this breakthrough. And so, uh, so yeah, so that's where, that's kind of like where it's at right now. But I was pretty fascinated. I was like, I want to go, this is just like a, like I'm at the Ted talk level. So like, you know, that's the surface of the surface, but I'm very interested in going deeper and learning more. So there's this book on longevity. I believe it's called lifespan. I'm, I'm going to, I'm thinking about reading it. I'm very fascinated by this too. It, it, Something that I've been thinking about, and we're going to have to wrap up here. It's all like when I was thinking about dying, it seems like we mostly like all just die from like some type of cancer or Alzheimer's or something like that. Like we like if the timeline's long enough, like we're all going to get cancer or like some type of Alzheimer's or something like that and die. And I've always been wondering to myself, isn't it weird to you that with everything that we have, that someone could still die from one of these illnesses that you could have you could have had for 6 12 24 months like i've always thought like you should know right away you should know like right. once that cell forms or you know i don't know anything about medicine but you understand and so anyway this is the, I, i've also been obsessing with that maybe it's because like i'm getting in my 
my 30s now and I'm like, well, I kind of, I'm very slowly, but I kind of just felt like a little bit of like soreness. I don't want to like get older and I'm flipping out a little bit. So I'm on board with this. I'm going to start reading this. Yeah, there's, um, there's, uh, uh, what's it called? There's a chart that's great. And the chart basically shows why do people die? And it's like, it's like a visual chart. So it's like, uh, blue, if it's, um, you know, it's, it just happens in yourself. It's non-transmissible. Red is if one person passes it to another, like the flu or COVID or whatever. And then there's like a, a, the size of the bubble is basically how many people die of that every year. It's like, number one is cardiovascular disease. And then number two is cancer. And that's like, you know, that's bulk of the deaths, right? And then like number five is influenza. And then you kind of, you know, whatever you go on from there. So you're right. It is these sort of same causes, stuff that people are trying to fix, but uh, no, no breakthrough yet that like just radically eliminates that. Like remember when people used to die of cancer, that will happen. It's just a matter of when, uh, which is pretty sweet, honestly. Yeah, it's interesting to me. Um, all right. I think that uh, that episode was a nine out of 10. W- what do you think? I liked it. What do you think, Dan? I'll give you a nine as well. All right. I think that was good. Um, Dan's got a little bit of a, of a Ned Flanders in him. I, I yeah. can see Dan being the Ned Flanders <laughs> of a neighborhood. I don't think that's a compliment. I, no, it's Ned definitely, Flanders is uh, it's definitely cheerful, a compliment. great neighbor. What's wrong with Ned Flanders? All right. I'll take it. Like a very positive guy. Yes. That, I thought that was a comment. All right. Thank you. That's the episode. Feel like I can rule the world. I know I can be what I want to. I put my all in it like no days off. On the road, let's travel, never looking back.